Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules Today, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Imagine you're at the Kansas State Fair in the 1920s. Much of what you would see there would look familiar today. There's cooking competitions and kids running around the fairgrounds. And when night comes, maybe a big fireworks display. Farm families are arriving from all over the place to ride on the rides, watch the races, and, of course, to show off their livestock. But starting in 1920, there's another fair event, which in today's perspective really seems hard to believe. Along with the pigs and cows competing for ribbons, there are entire human families being judged. Urine is tested. Ever broken any bones? Skulls are measured. How often do you bathe the children? Teeth are evaluated. Open, please. Judges ask questions about childhood diseases. Mothers are giving the judges a list of the meals they give their kids every day. Every family member is observed chewing food. And the judges are there taking notes down on all of this. There's a written IQ test for children and parents. And for good measure, A syphilis test rounds out the experience. This whole thing, it's called a fitter family contest. And they have a really specific social purpose for the 1920s. They're designed to get across a message to the masses that human genetics determines all that is good and evil about modern American society. Put simply, some people shouldn't reproduce. Some people should never be born. 
And in this podcast, we're going to be talking about one family from Mississippi who, if they had gone before those judges back in that era, they would have been judged defective or low grade, which were terms actually used in those days. And therefore, they would have been deemed unworthy of breeding. That's because they had a little boy named Donald who was exhibiting certain unexpected and inexplicable behaviors. He was different. But the determination of Donald's mom and dad to make sense of his differences and their certainty that he deserved a place in this world, well, it will change not only Donald's life, but all of our lives. For iHeart Podcasts, I'm John Donvan. And I'm Karen Zucker. This is Autism's First Child, an iHeart original podcast. And this is Episode 1, Fitter Families. 20 years ago, my journalism career took an unexpected turn. At the time, I was working as a general assignment reporter at ABC News, and I had spent years covering wars and famine and political upheaval. ABC's John Donvan begins our series. Now with his analysis of what we saw in last night's presidential debate is John Donvan, ABC News. 8.9 magnitude, epicenter 15 miles below ground. In 1997, one of my colleagues, a producer I worked with a lot, learned that her two-year-old son, Mickey, had autism. Here's Karen. So my son, Mickey, was in the special toddler program at Barnard College, where kids from 18 to 36 months went to school. The very first day we went, my husband and I were sitting in this two-way mirror, and there are 12 or 13 kids. You know, they're all playing, and all of a sudden the teacher said, everybody go sit down and, and get some juice and crackers. So 11 of those kids went down and sat at the table to get their juice and crackers, and there was Mickey in the corner with his shoes and socks off dancing to the music. As soon as you saw him with other children, educators who knew autism could tell that he was different. We thought he was different because he was reading it at one and a half, and we knew he went to a different drummer, but we just sort of thought he was brilliant. We didn't know how different he was, and they suggested he get evaluated, and, and six weeks later, he was diagnosed with autism. Mickey's diagnosis in 1996 turned Karen's life completely upside down. Before that, you know, she was one of the network's up-and-coming producers, definitely, and she was, we thought, bound to be one of the people the rest of us would end up working for at the network. Well, not quite. But the very first interview I ever did as a journalist was with Rosa Parks. So in the early days, I thought I was off to a good start. I covered politics. I went overseas to help cover the Gulf War, the Barcelona Olympics. It was a good run. So it was a shock to everybody that out of nowhere, this incredible journalist that you were known to be, Karen, you know, just stepped off the fast track. You went from working full-time to working part-time. Yeah. My boss had offered me a job share because he didn't want to lose me, and he knew that I'd give 150%. And I was really, really fortunate because I was able to keep my hand in the news business. And I was even more fortunate because I was able to use the skill of journalism as a way to figure out what to do for Mickey and to educate others about autism and share it with the world. Because at this time, when people heard the word autism, everybody still thought one thing, and that was Rain Man. In his particular case, he's pretty well off. He's very high functioning. Most autistics, they can't speak or they can't communicate. Right. Yeah. Do you know what autistic is? Yeah. You know that word? Yeah. Are you autistic? 
I don't think so. No. Definitely not. Getting a network to agree to do a half an hour on a topic that, honestly, most people still had never heard of in the 1990s, um, that took a lot of, uh, let's say, push. And Karen is a bulldog. She pushed. And she convinced Nightline to let us do it. We were the first team in network news to make reporting about autism into an actual beat. Those first autism stories that we did together put me into a, um, a more intimate kind of connection with the people I was reporting on that I was actually used to. You know, you can do uh, war reporting in this kind of big picture way. And most of the time, that's how it happens. You're telling the story of a whole city under siege or a whole army of soldiers. But this reporting on autism was always very close up and very intimate and focused on individuals and their families. And it was very internal. It was about the feelings of people on the spectrum and their parents, who often when their kids were first diagnosed were confused and frightened and having to adjust to this new normal for their kids. I had some experience with autism. My brother-in-law has autism, but it didn't prepare me for this kind of reporting. That first story Karen and I told, uh, we did it very honestly, and it had a big impact in the autism community. And after that, Karen asked me to do another story, and then another. And we created this series called Echoes, Echoes of Autism. Of autism. Still unexplained wave of autism that began in the U.S. in the 1990s. With an estimated 500,000 kids in the U.S. with autism today, there are... We reported on girls with autism, adults with autism, siblings, how kids with autism are bullied. So we've been covering autism together for television for seven years. And now, seven years in, we're hard at work on a book about the history of the diagnosis. And the research for that brought us into close contact with the work of a doctor named Leo Connor, a child psychiatrist. And we're going to get deeper into Connor's life in our next episode. But in 1943, Dr. Connor published a landmark paper that described a neurological disorder that, as he put it, had not previously been described. He called it Autistic Disturbances of Effective Contact. And in that article, he defined what we all today recognize as autism. And he included case studies of 11 children. And here's how he described their symptoms. The disinterest in people, the obsession with objects, the deep need for sameness and routine, the detachment and inaccessibility to others. Connor also made observations at his clinic at Johns Hopkins of these kids directly. But from the beginning, Karen and I were drawn to the first case described in this study, literally called Case One, Donald. Last name, initial T, Donald T. We started to wonder if he was still alive. Meeting Donald would be meeting history. In his case study on Donald T, Connor mentions a birth date, September 8th, 1933. I turned up a speech that Connor gave in 1971 where he mentions that Donald lives in a little town in Mississippi called Forest. First name, last initial. Birth date, location. That's more than enough to track a person down. So we did some sleuthing and came up with what we thought was going to be Donald's phone number. And Karen is the one who dialed it. An answering machine picked up. Once I heard the message, I knew it was him. I called John and said, I found him. I found Donald T. 
After the break, we'll investigate a wildly popular turn-of-the-century scientific movement to breed better humans and how that science led to the institutionalization, sterilization, even the euthanasia of scores of children like Donald. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Our quest to understand autism's case number one and what his life was like and what the world that he grew up in was like, it actually begins well before Donald T. is born. I don't think people are that familiar with the fact that from really the early 1900s up until the beginning of World War II, essentially, eugenics was really a big movement in the United States, swept the country, as I mentioned. Here's Adam Cohen, eugenics historian, author of the book Imbeciles. It was an era of science, and it was a progressive era also. Humans emerged from this evolutionary process. What if we tried to take a more active role in it? What if we tried to focus on good genes and do that to make better people, sort of like farmers have been doing for millennia by trying to breed better cattle? Even before those fitter family contests started popping up at state fairs, there was something called the Better Babies movement that got a hold on American culture around the turn of the 20th century. Better Babies kicks off with a contest at the Louisiana State Fair in 1908. 
Tourists are filing through an exhibition hall and watching as nurses in white gowns and cardboard caps weigh and measure and inspect these little tiny babies. And the baby judged to be the healthiest and the strongest and the, the most scientifically raised, that baby is awarded a silver trophy. There was oddly some very positive intent behind it, right? I mean, this was a time when medical education wasn't widespread, particularly in rural areas. People didn't have the information they now have about baby rearing. Dr. Spock's book hadn't been written yet. There wasn't Google to search, you know, what to do when babies colicky and things like that. So some of this is informational. It's trying to help people with a difficult thing of raising a child in a world with very low information. But because of the era... Women's Home Companion, which was a really popular magazine, co-ops this whole idea and forms the Better Babies Bureau. In practically no time, you can find a Better Baby event in 40 states. Thousands of moms enter their children. There's something really fun about it. It's like the ultimate soapbox derby. Winning comes with incredible bragging rights. In Iowa, the contests are run by a woman named Mary T. Watts, a matronly presence, snowy white hair, pulled back in a bun, rigid posture. She's perpetually draped in these long pearls that swing to her waist. Shortly after starting Better Baby's Iowa chapter, Watts receives a postcard signed by a man named Charles Davenport, who tells her she is missing one important measurement. You should give 50% to hereditary before you begin to score a baby. Watts doesn't know it just yet, but in the field of eugenics, Davenport is a serious player. Watts forgets all about the postcard until the following year when Davenport sends another note. A prize winner at two may be an epileptic at ten. And now Watts is convinced. She decides to insert heredity tests into the contests. Forget better babies. Now it's fitter families. It takes six years for Watts to get the fitter families concept off the ground. Experts doubt that any educated, self-respecting adult will submit willingly to physical exams at a county fair. Who on earth would be open to the syphilis test? There was really many attempts to bring the highfalutin ideas of eugenics to the people, measure people's skulls to see like how large they were and how big the brain would be. So they're doing that kind of, quote, scientific work. The first Fitter Families for Fireside Chats competition is held in 1920 at a Kansas agricultural fair. Twenty families compete. Early competitions are such a success that Watts takes the show on the road. The contests are always timed to overlap with the main event, the livestock contests. Farmers truck in their best-looking cattle and their most perfect pigs to compete for the blue ribbons. Better bred animals, when crossed again and again, lead to unending improvement in the stock of the breed. Mrs. Watts has the same goal for humans. While the judges are testing the Holsteins, Jerseys, and White Faces, we are testing the Joneses, Smiths, and the Johnsons. When Mrs. Watts found a winner, like the Kelly family of Isle of Hope, Georgia, which she referred to as being of the highest type, she meant that the Kellys were the sort of Americans who should be encouraged, exhorted even, to reproduce. Meantime, all the information that we collect on your family is going to be stored uh, at the Eugenics Record Office in Cold Spring Harbor. That's Dr. Laura Lovett, historian, professor, and author. And it's going to allow for a kind of 
what they imagined would be a control of the entire population around genetic predispositions. This was actually quite widespread in the 1910s and 1920s. The New York Times ran a favorable feature about the eugenics record office and how people could take eugenics into account in deciding who to marry. Back at the state fair, a sign at the competition booth carries an urgent warning. Every 48 seconds, a person is born in the United States who will never grow up mentally beyond that stage of a normal eight-year-old boy or girl. A second sign adds perspective. Every 15 seconds, $100 of your money goes for the care of persons with bad heredity, such as the insane, the feeble-minded, criminals, and other defectors. And a third sign offers hope. Every seven and a half minutes, a high-grade person is born. Good heredity is falling behind at an alarming rate, they warn. Small-town newspaper editors decide the fittest families make for great copy, and they spread the word about eugenics. Now, in the broader eugenics movement, Mrs. Watts is really just a bit player. She's not a scientist. She's not an academic. She's not a statesman. Her operation really is the extreme retail end of eugenics, a scientific, political, and philosophical movement that dedicated itself, as one adherent put it, to drying up the springs that feed the torrent of defective and degenerate protoplasm. But scientists, academics, and statesmen are well represented in the eugenics movement, at Harvard and at Yale. In the pages of Scientific American and in the New York Times, powerful people like Alexander Graham Bell embrace this brand new so-called science. And John D. Rockefeller, eugenics starts to creep into public schools. President Teddy Roosevelt is a big fan of this book called the passing of the great race. A rigid system of selection through the elimination of those who are weak or unfit, in other words, social failures, would solve the whole question in 100 years. The book's author is a man named Madison Grant, who is widely respected at the time. He's the founder of the American Museum of Natural History. He's a really major conservationist and a very high-ranking member of polite New York society. He gets a lot of fan letters from all over the place. One of them came from Austria, from a young man who wrote to Grant that the book is now his Bible. This young Austrian man's name, Adolf Hitler. And we know what the Nazis did with these ideas. They set up the Reich Committee for the Scientific Registering of Serious Hereditary and Congenital Illnesses. It sounds very bureaucratic, but it's basically a child-killing organization. Under this program, children three and under with any number of congenital disorders are condemned to be euthanized. Years before the Nazis, eugenics had crept into American society in some very dark ways. There were already institutions across the country where epileptics and the intellectually disabled were kept separated from society. But now, more than half the states began to allow forced sterilization of these individuals. Here's Dr. Lovett. Often in those asylums where sterilization, without any any information, any conversation takes place. And those depend on the states 
Indiana is one of the first ones to introduce a sterilization law in 1908. It's going to focus predominantly on male inmates. California, for example, and part of this has to do with that First World War, decides that, in fact, it's going to sterilize as many women as men. And it sterilizes women who wind up in what were called feeble-minded institutions. A false assumption has now taken hold that there's a meaningful relationship between somebody's IQ and that person's ability to be a contributing and law-abiding and moral member of society. Lower IQ was thought to define an undesirable sort of person. And so they imagined then that the way to prevent further reproduction of lower IQ or feeble-minded individuals was to sterilize them. And so California, for example, winds up sterilizing as many women as men, whereas in, in Indiana, it produces predominantly males. In 1926, Margaret Sanger tells a Vassar College audience... This is the founder of Planned Parenthood. Right, right. This is what she tells an audience of young women. The American public is taxed, heavily taxed, to maintain an increasing race of morons, which threatens the very foundations of our civilization. The very next year, the United States Supreme Court hears a case called Buck versus Bell, addressing the constitutionality of Virginia's Eugenical Sterilization Act. Carrie Buck's story could be a podcast all its own. The state decides to sterilize Carrie Buck even though there's nothing wrong with her. She doesn't suffer from any sort of malady. She's just a poor teenage mother with a sixth grade education. Eugenics depends heavily on IQ tests. Carrie Buck is classified as, quote, middle-grade moron, a technical classification that they actually used based on the intelligence scale, but still put her above the levels of idiot and imbecile, which were also terms that they actually used. Morons, again, that's how Carrie was rated, are considered dangerous people. They're smart enough to pass undetected and even to breed with their so-called superiors. Carrie, who is an unmarried teenager, has a child, which to the experts back then indicated heightened sexuality and fertility, both said to be common among the so-called mentally deficient. It was really a nightmare tangle of measurements, classifications, assumptions, and prejudices. The Supreme Court rules 8 to 1 that the statute doesn't violate the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. This decision clears the way for the forced sterilization of some 70,000 Americans. Some people want to go beyond forced sterilizations. They want to actually euthanize intellectually disabled children. That means kill them. It's an idea that's actually proposed in the American Journal of Psychiatry by a neurologist named Robert Foster Kennedy. July 1942. Kennedy argues that death is sometimes the most appropriate prescription for children he called nature's mistakes. This defective child has no future, nor hope of one. Then it is a merciful and kindly thing to relieve that defective, often tortured and convulsed, grotesque and absurd, useless and foolish, and entirely undesirable of the agony of living. Basically, execute them. Shocking, right? Not to everybody back then. The previous year, 1941, in a poll of thousands of doctors in New York, 27% of the respondents said they favored legalizing euthanasia 
for severely disabled kids. And back in 1933, this was the world that Donald T. was born into. When we return, Mary and Beeman Triplett wrestle with the scientific community's insistence that the best course of action is locking their baby boy away forever. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant... Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. My grandfather, McCravey, J.R. McCravey, was born in Tate County, Mississippi, in 1866, and he grew up on a farm in really abject poverty, but had a mind for banking. That's Donald Triplett's brother, Oliver. Their family founded and are still part owners of the Bank of Forest. Their mother, Mary, had a college degree, which was very rare for a woman in the middle of Mississippi in that time. She married the former mayor's son, Oliver Beeman Triplett Jr., known to most people as Mr. Beeman. Beeman had a degree from Yale Law School, also rare for the middle of Mississippi, and he practiced law in Forest. My father was interested in law early on, and when he graduated from Millsaps in the early 20s, the state had lost its accreditation, and he had a cousin that lived in Valdosta, Georgia, that had connections with the University of Florida. He got him enrolled down there in the law school and he went for two years, but decided he wanted a more prestigious law degree and opted to go to Yale. And so he went to New Haven. 
as a one-year wonder. And he told me, he said, the professors up there, you know, sort of resented the fact I was going up there. But he said, I was very diligent and graduated with honors. So that's, that's how that all came down. In 1933, Mary gave birth to Donald. When Donald was three, his parents brought him to Sanatorium, Mississippi, to a facility known as the Preventorium. But he wouldn't be making the return trip. Now, that's kind of a strange word, Preventorium. But there actually used to be a lot of them around the country. Children, especially poor children, were thought to be at high risk of tuberculosis and Doctors would send kids away to these places called preventoriums to keep them safe by keeping them out of society where the germs were. But Donald wasn't really at risk of catching TB. That's not why he was sent away. It was because he was different. And this was a thing that sometimes wealthy families did. It was a way to institutionalize a child without having to connect it to any sort of mental condition. It was a way to dodge the stigma. And perhaps for that reason, or perhaps they just didn't know what else to do. That's what Donald's parents did in 1937. And we wondered, what would the separation have been like for Donald's parents to go through? Oh, I think it was extremely difficult, John. You could imagine, I mean, this this was her firstborn child. Here's another member of the Triplett family. My name is O.B. Triplett, and Don is my uncle. Maimon Triplett was Don's father and, and my granddad. He um, was a lawyer here in town and settled here and wound up marrying my grandmother. Uh, her name was Mary McCravey. And Don was born and everything's good. And then things started, you know, changing. She realized that something wasn't quite right. It's the, it's the way I, you know, picture this. Of course, the, at the time, autism wasn't even a word that I'm aware of. I'm not an expert or anything, but... Nobody knew, you know, about it or anything. He was under the impression that perhaps he was insane. Donald was not insane. But the state of psychiatry was stunningly primitive back in the 1930s, especially child psychiatry. That's another topic we'll be delving into more deeply in our next episode. There was no one in the professional ranks who could make sense of Donald's behaviors. I asked Donald's brother Oliver what he thought the early signs were that his mom had noticed. That was really before my time. See, I told you my earliest memory of him was in 43. But from what I'm told, and it's pure hearsay, he, he was unresponsive. He didn't like to cuddle, stuff like that. Now, that's nothing but hearsay. I wasn't around for that. <laughs> Donald never ran to his father when he came home from work. He never cried for his mother they often felt he was looking right through them. But at the same time, he had this attachment to objects. He especially loved to spin things. But if he was interrupted while doing that, or anything else, he would have intense tantrums. It became clear that Donald was protecting something really important to him, and that was sameness, pure, unadulterated predictability. The triplets threw everything they had at trying to find an answer for their son. They had money. They had access to the best technological tools of the day, a car and a telephone. They got Donald seen by top doctors. 
But nobody had an explanation for Donald's differences. And along the way, we're guessing his parents heard some terms that were extremely painful to hear. Defective, demented, deranged, feeble-minded. And when kids got these kinds of labels, there was so often the really depressing prescription for what should be done. Put this child away. So when there were parents who wanted simply to keep their child at home, to make them part of their family, doctors said, Don't. So this is the kind of message we think Donald's parents were getting. Sending him away was not their idea. It was a doctor's. In fact, a doctor told Mary she was part of the problem. You have overstimulated him. And the doctor told them to send Donald away. That's what they were told to do. That's what, that's what was expected for them to do. That's what was accepted at that time. And they went out there and, and got Don in. And this preventorium looked like a Greek temple with huge white columns out on the front porch. And one day Donald's parents brought him there and walked him in between the columns and they checked him in. Marion Beeman Triplett watched the nurse take three-year-old Donald's hand and lead him down the hall. Then they turned away and left. I can't imagine there was much conversation on the drive back home. Being in the preventorium was not good for Donald. There had been a light in his eyes before he got to this place. He had been a noisy and active kid and curious and creative. But all of that went dead at the preventorium and almost all at once. We found a photograph of Donald from this period where we never expected to. It was in a report on the Preventorium, published in 1939. On page 33, there's Donald. He's sitting on the front steps, surrounded by a dozen other kids. The other kids are clearly reacting to something. They're, they're smiling and they're giggling, like the photographer had just made a joke to get them to laugh for the picture. But not Donald. He's just staring at the camera not looking happy at all. And we unearthed some medical notes on his time there. And they said he basically went silent. He wasn't healthy at all. The quote in the notes is that he faded away physically. And he sat motionless, not paying attention to anything. All the things Donald used to like to pick up and examine and spin, like blocks and books and toy trucks and pots and pans, he stopped reaching for them or for anything. The examining doctor later concluded, It seems that he had there his worst phase. Donald's mom and dad really missed their son, and they were not giving up on helping him somehow. One day, Beeman sat down with his secretary, Catherine Robertson, and he started to dictate a letter, which she typed up, pages and pages of it, single-spaced, 33 pages long, of observations of Donald's behaviors. In time, the words Beeman spoke and that Ms. Robinson typed up would travel far and wide. They would be quoted in scholarly research. Discussed in university classrooms. Translated into multiple languages. Words that still paint a vivid portrait and help to define the diagnosis that we call autism. Simply put, this letter, this cry for help, it opened a door to a new way of understanding. Coming up on Autism's First Child. Hey, Donnie. Hey. Hey, 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 hey. How are you? Do I get a hug? Oh, yeah, you get a hug. 
Donald T., five years old then, was brought to my clinic from Forest, Mississippi, and made me aware for the first time of a behavior pattern not known to me or anyone else theretofore. Even though I was diagnosed at the age of 11, the word autism didn't really mean anything at that point. Um, I only knew that I was different, and that different was bad. You know how cruel kids can be, particularly at a younger age. You don't keep secrets in small towns, you know. I think the combination of the bank, of the respect that his family had earned, went a long way toward the community realizing that here's this family with a great deal of stature in the community who have a son that's causing them a, a great deal of struggle. I think something to be considered about Donald Triplett is that he's in a homogenous space, which means that the family had means and access and power. The framework for doing the autism diagnostic test itself is based on how white people understand behavior and language. I'm John Donvan. I'm Karen Zucker. Autism's First Child is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcasts, and based on our book and documentary film, In a Different Key. The podcast is produced by Alexander Ritchie. Our story editors are Matt Riddle and Alex French, senior staff writer at iHeart Originals. Original score composed and mixed by Elise McCoy. Scoring, mixing, and mastering by Ryan Peoples. Voiceovers by Zoe Wirt, Michael Coscarelli, David Perry, Christopher Paul Stelling, and Louis Carlozo. The Rain Man clip, courtesy of MGM Media Licensing. Archival sound thanks to Craig Smith at freesound.org. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and Jason English. Special thanks to Ray Conley, Ernie Indradot, and Will Pearson. School of Humans. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. 
Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.